everyone. This is fun. Welcome. It's so nice to see all of you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Lynette Hager, and I am married to Michael Hager, and we have two sons, Ben and Andrew. Um, Andrew has been married to Laura for a year, and they live in Michigan um, on the Michigan church plant. And our son, Ben, married the lovely Caitlin, who they met in Salt. Um, and they've been married for three years, and they live in Inkeny, and so um, we're delighted with all of that. And um, yeah, I've been at Candy, we've been at Candy O for a while now, and I get to disciple salt leaders, and that is such a delight. So um, that being said, um, if all of your tables are like the table that I was just at, you know every single point I was going to make. So here we go. Here we go. It'll fall fresh, I'm sure. Just fall fresh. Okay. So this entire section of 1 Peter addresses a lot of things, but for our purposes in the next few minutes, it basically boils down to submission and godly living as believers in an unbelieving world. So with that being said, in chapter 2, in the beginning verses, Peter reminds us again of who we are, and he tells us to conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that we are witnesses and so that God will be glorified. And he goes on to say that one of the ways we do that is by submitting to every human authority. Because as Christians, we don't have the right to do as we please just because we might be in disagreement with the authorities in our life. Disagreeing is never an excuse for bad behavior. Christians need to show respect to authority because God has put these institutions into place and therefore as God's people, we're called to submit to the rules, not go on a social media rant and in all caps, yell at the people we disagree with. We have to remember that it was kindness, the kindness of God that saved us. We need to be respectful citizens in our world. We're to honor everyone, love our brothers and sisters, fear God, and honor the king. Since our hope isn't in the government, our political arguments shouldn't tell the world that it is. Not ironically, today is election day. And it is good to be reminded that I believe in the name of Jesus more than I do any other name on earth. And all the people said amen. So then we see another side of submission in the next section as it relates to unfair treatment and suffering. So how do we, as the people of God, respond when people treat us unfairly? Certainly in our society, the default reaction to anything unfair is to be disrespectful and rude, um, or worse yet, to retaliate. Our culture, our culture tells us that we deserve this and we deserve that, but believers should remember that what we deserve is eternal condemnation, but that's not what we've been given if we're in Christ. So showing respect and honor to authority makes us unlike the world because we live in a world that's offended by every little thing. So our culture says we should demand our rights and not put up with any kind of unfairness when in reality we should expect the world to be unfair because it is. Peter says there will be unfair treatment and unjust suffering, but enduring it brings favor from God because in the same way, Jesus provided our greatest example in demonstrating humility and enduring his undeserved suffering for the benefit of others. We're also told that we should follow in his footsteps because the essence of our calling is to rightly represent Christ to the world. So we bear witness to the life-changing power of Jesus in us when we demonstrate the grace and mercy that we've received without merit. Jesus demonstrated 
willful submission. When he went to the cross as our substitute, he trusted himself to the Father and to the Father's plan. So there has to be something in our behavior when we're treated unfairly, something that is radically different than what the world's response would be. Christ-like behavior demonstrates that our hope is in Christ and not in the things of this world. Jesus proved that a person can be in the will of God, deeply loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. So that was a flyover of the end of chapter 2. I'm going to move on to chapter 3, where Sarah has asked me to spend the bulk of my time this evening um, just talking about biblical submission. But I want to first speak to the unmarried women in the room to be sure that you know that you are not left out of this, because no matter our season of life, or our current circumstances, Christians should be continuously cultivating a submissive heart and an attitude of humility, whether it's in the workplace or in the community or in our homes. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. What I want us to see here is that submission is God's idea it's his original plan of order. He created everything with structure, and he created order out of chaos because he is not a god of chaos. But we create chaos when we live outside of his plan. The word of God is timeless, so we have to find a way for the words on these pages to find a place in our heart because our hearts are deceitful. As it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is why follow your heart is terrible advice. Side note. Okay, so back to the end of chapter 2. These verses actually set up the teaching for the beginning of chapter 3 because Peter says, likewise, or in the same way. And again in verse 7 to the husbands, he says, in the same way. So what way is that? The way that Jesus himself demonstrated when he submitted to the will of the Father. He left us his example to follow. So likewise, in the same way, wives... Be subject to your own husbands. Likewise, in the same way, husbands, show your wives honor. In other words, be like Jesus. So I want to point out here, and this is especially important, this text is never to be used to say that a woman in an abusive relationship should just submit. Scripture doesn't say that anywhere. Marriage is meant to be a beautiful picture of the love story between Christ and his church. Anything less than that grieves God's heart because he values marriage. Also a side note, but important. So after reminding his readers of Jesus' example of humility, then Peter instructs married women to show submission to their husbands. In this specific case, it's so that husbands who were not obedient to the word might be won over by the purity of their wives' attitudes and behaviors. If a wife was a believer in the Roman culture, she had to move forward in a very cautious way because she was potentially in danger for expressing beliefs that were different than her husband's. So therefore, her husband would be won over not by constant preaching and nagging, but by the attractiveness of genuine behavior. So living a holy life can win him to Christ. It's the character and conduct of a wife that will win a lost husband, as it is the character and conduct of every believer that can win a lost world to Christ. Your godly behavior as a believing wife can be used by God to influence your husband for eternal good, 
whether that is witnessing to him so that he then comes to Christ, or if it's influencing his walk as a husband who already knows the Lord, you have an impact on that. He goes on to say that what is inside her heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, is of great worth in God's sight. So what does that mean, a gentle and quiet spirit? Well, gentle and quiet doesn't mean mild and mousy. The term gentle does not imply weakness, but self-restraint. If you're told to be gentle, the implication is that you have the, the ability to not be gentle, to be harsh or to be hot-headed. So all believers are called to be gentle. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, not just a fruit of women. It's for all who have received the Holy Spirit to bear the fruits of the Spirit. So a gentle and quiet spirit simply abides by God's plan and it puts our strengths under God's guidance. So this gentle and quiet spirit is how we adorn the gospel. It's important to understand that God's not asking us to stop being who we are. I have a big personality. I have rarely been described as a quiet person, and I have been told that a little of me goes a long way. Whatever. When we go to events... Michael depends on my personality to make other people feel welcome and to carry on conversations and to help make other people feel comfortable in social settings. So he needs me for that. He needs my personality for that. So regardless of your personality, a godly wife can certainly express Christ-like strength in her gentleness toward her husband. Peter also says that she has a quiet spirit, which simply means she has a peaceful well-ordered spirit that allows her to speak and behave in peaceful, well-ordered ways. It's having a spirit that is considerate and not controlling. In a godly marriage, you can quote me, in a godly marriage, there is no room for control freaks. Having a character of peacefulness is of great worth in God's sight. Godly women can certainly be strong and gifted leaders. We can use our talents and our strengths in our home by bringing them under control in such a way that our husband sees us as not fighting against him, but making our marriage better in a peaceful partnership to bless him by living in harmony, not always in total agreement, but always respectfully. Verse 7 is where Peter goes on to say that husbands are to treat their wives with respect as the weaker vessel or the weaker partner. So again, this terminology can be confusing, so I looked at several resources to unpack that and came up with this little gem on crossway.com that was written by Jen Wilkin called How Are Women Weaker Vessels? I shall read to you. Peter instructs wives on how to live carefully with an unbelieving husband who could cause them or their children physical harm for having converted to a new religion. Then he admonishes husbands not to deal harshly with them, even though their culture would have allowed it. So the intent of show honor to the women as the weaker vessel would not seem to be tiptoe around your wife's emotions, nor would it seem to be treat your wife like fine china, as is often taught. Though it is well-intentioned, I wish we would stop teaching that. Fine china is fragile, rarely used, rarely useful, and largely decorative. I don't believe that is the picture scripture paints of godly women here or in Proverbs 31. Peter uses the term weaker vessel to point to the general truth that women are comparatively physically weaker than men. Peter is reminding husbands of this relationship and warning them not to use physical strength to intimidate or harm their wives. 
Peter in no way diminishes the worth or capability of wives by comparing their physical strength to that of their husbands. He is, in fact, guarding them from being treated contemptibly. Wives, your emotions are not a sign of weakness. They are a gift from the Lord and can be of great strength. You and your husband share equal potential for strength or weakness in all things moral, intellectual, and emotional. So, to put it lightly, it seems that the call of wives to submit to their husbands is misunderstood because it's just a hard concept. As believers, though, we know that in Christ, no one is more than or less than another person. We are equal to our husbands in God's eyes, but we're still under his authority. It's the secular worldview that drives so much division between men and women because the concept is so politically incorrect. Also, the politically incorrect wife... So good. It was written in the 1900s, like 1999. Um, nonetheless, I really, really like it. It's a good book. My kids say that all the time. Oh, mom, you were born in the 1900s. And so were you. Again, I digress. Okay, so understanding submission is difficult because there's little cultural support for it. So Jackie Hill Perry and her husband Preston have a podcast called 30 Minutes with the Perrys, and I watched it on YouTube. They just put up a two-part series on headship and submission, and she said at the beginning, which is just so funny, she said she just laughs at young women who are like, I can't wait to submit to my husband. I just, I just can't wait to be submissive to him. And she said, if you are excited about submission, you actually don't know what it is. So <laughs> let me just say that. Um, so this is perhaps why the instructions given to us by Paul in Titus 2 are important for us, for the older women to teach the younger women. But why though? Because those ongoing, lifelong relationships between younger women and older women are such a great source of wisdom and encouragement. And I would like to give a quick shout out to Ellie and Molly, who are in this room, and I've had the privilege of discipling them for several years. It hasn't been a one-way street because they are just as comfortable calling out my sin as I am theirs, and I love them for it as much as you can love having your sin confronted. Um, but if you want a handbook on discipling, this is one of the best. It is called Adorned. And if you want to enter in a discipleship relationship, this is set up specifically as younger women and older women in a study. So back to submission. Submission is not for the weak-willed or the faint-hearted. It's dependent upon my own heart attitude, not my husband's or anyone else's. It's not a lack of understanding that keeps us from submitting. It's a proud heart because my heart determines whether or not something is done for God's glory. Beth Moore said that I can't be full of the Holy Spirit and full of myself at the same time. I need to empty myself and be filled with him. At this point, I think it's helpful, especially if the subject is relatively new for you, to talk about what submission is not. Submission does not mean that I am inferior to my husband. It is not demeaning. Scripture affirms that men and women are created in the image of God with equal worth. God didn't send Jesus to the cross to assure that women would have second-class citizenship. We are co-heirs with Christ, equally loved and valued by God with equal access to him. My husband is not my supreme authority, but he is my delegated authority. Christ alone is my supreme authority. Submission is not mindless giving in. I have lots of valid thoughts and opinions, and I participate in all of the decision-making in our home. Part of my ministry as a wife includes saying what I think, and being Michael's wife is my ministry. It is given to me by God, ordained 
by God so that together God and I are the head of that ministry. For the last 28 years now, I have triumphed and failed and everything in between in this area. But what I know is that my submission to Michael is a conscious decision to share all that God has given me without reservation to the one person he's given me to share it with. I support him with everything available to me to encourage him and to contribute to our partnership and to strengthen our marriage. Since God himself is the one who gave me the gift of submission, it honors him when I practice it. A spirit-filled wife willingly and reverently serves out of her love for Christ. My choice to obey God has to take precedence over my rationalization for taking over my husband's leadership in our home and acting outside of my God-given role. But there's something deeper than obedience because of duty, and that is obedience because of devotion. John 14, 23 says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. The pure power of that truth should change me. We are all to obey Jesus' teaching. And because of that, my husband's failure to obey will never justify my failure to obey. My job description doesn't change just because someone else isn't doing their job. So even if your husband is an unbeliever, he is still the leader in your home because there is a God-given chain of authority even if your husband isn't fulfilling his God-given role. But you can help him assume his leadership role by giving your marriage the things that God tells you to in his word. So 18 years ago, we moved to Cedar Falls from Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, my husband, we met there. We got married there and had our babies there. Um, he worked for the University of Nebraska, and we belonged to this amazing church. And life was as sweet as I could have ever hoped, and I felt we had put down roots until he saw that there was a job opening at, at UNI where he did his undergrad and he loves that institution and he loves this community. So he said, I really feel like I need to apply for that job at UNI. And I was like, oh, do they have a campus in Lincoln? Because <laughs> that was about as far as I was going to go for him to work at UNI. Um, nonetheless, he was known for making good decisions and for being more wise than I am, and I did not pitch a fit. I supported him in that and cared about that decision because I know that that decision was hard for him to make because he was taking our entire family into consideration and taking us away from everything we had ever known and putting us in Cedar Falls where I had never been. Nonetheless, God has called my husband to lead, and he has called me to help him be successful in his leading. Any attempt that I would have made to wrestle that away from him is called sin. So you might be thinking that you're not someone who tries to wrestle control away from your husband, and maybe you don't consciously. But have you ever been guilty of silence, sulking, holding a grudge, withholding sex, guilt trips? I've been guilty of all of those. And I've also been guilty of thinking that I will do my part when he starts doing his. But those behaviors and attitudes are manipulative. And at the root of those behaviors is a sinful heart attitude because the reality is I am every inch the sinner that he is. You don't marry someone in order to give them what they deserve. In a marriage, you give them what you have promised them. The key to the success of my ministry to Michael is my faithfulness to being the helper to him that God has called me to be. So we need to ask ourselves, do I have faith that God's way is the best way? Because it is no small thing when a woman chooses God's way over her own. So on to the last section 
he says in verse 8, finally, or to sum up, we're to be like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. Those attitudes create unity and harmony in our home and in our community. There isn't much I can do to change the culture, but I can certainly be on mission to change my behavior within the culture. Because we're to be compassionate and tender-hearted, we are to walk in humility. Humility is what ties all of this together. Humility is how we bless a lost and broken world. The life we're called to is so upside down because we're called not to retaliate against those who hurt us. We're called not to repay evil for evil. We're to love our enemies. We're to pray for our enemies. Our joy is not to be dependent on our circumstances because our hope isn't found in this world and the world is watching us. When we moved here, we moved into a neighborhood that had a neighborhood pool which was so great because we came here in the summertime and, and our boys didn't know anybody. And so all summer long, we were at the pool and they met the entire neighborhood. And then when they started school that fall, they weren't the new kids they, because they knew everyone. So that was fantastic. It wasn't without its moments because I found it trying to take two little boys to the pool almost every day. Um, but in that, um, one day this woman named Carol came up to me and she said, I want what you have. And I thought, well, if you would like two misbehaving little boys who won't obey me to save their lives, okay. Um, that is not what she meant. And so we started the conversation. Carol, what do you mean by that? What, please tell me more about that. How, how do we talk about this? Over the course of several years, I had the privilege of um, leading Carol to the Lord um, yeah, she grew up Catholic and didn't have a Bible, so I got to take her shopping for her first Bible. And she picked up one of them, and she said, why does this one have red words in it? And I said, oh, Carol, those are the words of Jesus. And she said, you mean we can know what he said? Yes, Carol, we can know what he said. And I had the privilege of just walking through that with her. And I say this not because, oh, I was super godly that one time and someone noticed, but because a holy God looked at a frazzled, strung out mom and said, I can do something with that. The world is watching. And so Carol saw something in that that allowed me the privilege of leading her to the Lord. Years after that, um, Carol came down with cancer and it just riddled her entire body. And she passed away a couple months ago. But what I know is that Carol was carried safely into the arms of Jesus because he was so good, so good in that time of being a frazzled mom. So, shoot. So whatever we face, whether it's suffering or blessing, we can be sure that his eyes are upon us as we live our lives as a response to the grace that we've received. So what is true of my life should lead people to know what is true about God.